Hello and welcome to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. My name is Charlotte, I'm Patient Advocacy Manager here at Leukemia Care. This month, I chatted to Jamie Woods. Jamie was diagnosed with acute promyelocytic leukemia in August 2019. We chatted about events since then, especially the impact on his mental health, and also about the additional challenges of COVID-19. Thanks for joining us, Jamie. Hi, thanks for having me. It's lovely to see you again. So, just to sort of kick off today's discussion then, um, we might as well start right at the beginning. Um, so, did you want to just tell the listeners a little bit about what signs and symptoms you experienced sort of right at the beginning of, of your journey of being diagnosed with leukemia? What was the first things where you started to think, oh, something's a bit wrong? Yeah, um, I'm, I remember quite clearly um, I'd been like on an exercise bike, been hitting that kind of hard, and I had a bruise on the bottom of my foot, which was really weird and quite painful, and it didn't go away. And after about a week and a half, it had gone. I thought, all right, it's not hurting anymore. Back on the bike, bruised again. But I didn't know anything about leukemia and bruising. I didn't know that was a symptom. I just thought, you know, maybe I needed some new shoes or something. Um, and I remember, I think it was on the on the Saturday, I went to a football match with my dad. And when we were walking back to the car, because we parked quite a way away, I remember now like listing all the annoyances that I'd have been having at the time. I was really tired. I just didn't feel quite right. Um, my gums were giving me a bit of grief. My foot was hurting. My bones were hurting. I just felt under the weather. Then the next day in the evening, we got home from like a Sunday lunch. My mum and dad said goodbye to them. They went home. And I just crashed on the sofa and, you know, I just didn't feel well. I thought I had the flu. Um, spent the next two days in bed thinking I had the flu, um, drinking lots of Lemsip, which was, you know, it was useful because it took my fever down. Um, but, you know, I was very feverish. Places hurt, like um, my muscles were tense, very painful. Um, I broke my arm when I was about 12 and that hurt like the place where I'd broken my arm hurt. And it was just really odd. All these old illnesses, my jaw, I have a bit of TMJ, so my, my jaw was really hurting just so much. And by the Wednesday, I phoned the doctors and I deliberately didn't take any paracetamol. So it was just like, I'm going to show him who I am. You know, this is me without the paracetamol. This is the pain levels I'm in. And, you know, it was, he was a locum. And I'd never seen him before. And he was so nice. And he just did all these tests. And then he got on the phone. And it was just like, yeah, he's not a very well man. And it's always a surprise to be called a man because, you know, I'm not very grown up. But at the same time, it was, this isn't right, is it? And we, he sent me to like the emergency admissions unit at Singleton Hospital in Swansea. And that was, that, that was the last I really remember for about a week. I, I was in there cramping and in pain and this ridiculous fever. I was in and out of consciousness. And um, they, at some point they did the most excruciating bone marrow biopsy I've had to date. I think by about the Thursday, they knew it was leukemia. And by the Friday, they knew it was APL. I guess going back to, to those symptoms, I mean, it sounds as if you had... You were sort of pointing, and, and the listeners won't be able to see this, but just for context, everyone that's listening, you were pointing to various parts of your body. Did you make any connection between these, something hurting on your head, something hurting on your feet? Like It, it sounds like it would be quite difficult to put those things together. 
Yeah, exactly. It was like having the flu, but I didn't have a cough or a, you know, I wasn't blowing my nose every five seconds. I just felt like completely and utterly drained and so hot and just in so much pain. You know, it was, it was really odd. I, I have no idea. You know, I, I genuinely didn't have a clue about leukemia. I didn't even know you could get blood cancer. So there was no, you know, if I'd had it, in, you know, if it's in, it in my chest or something, I'd be for all heart, lungs, you know, there, there's something wrong there. But because it was just affecting all of me, you don't start to think that drastically, I think, you know, because it's very easy to think of cancer in a, in a certain place. And if you get, you know, the moment you get a chest pain, you think, am I having a heart attack? No, of course I'm not having a heart attack. I'm fine. But, you know, you do, you get a chest pain. It's, it's, I don't know. So, I mean, I, I turned 40 a couple of years ago and my friend was like, you know, so what, what's it like being 40? And I said, it's exactly the same, except every time you get ill, you think you're going to die. And you really do. It's like there's something switched in my body. And I just thought, you know, every time I had that chest pain, I thought I was having a heart attack. Every time my stomach was, was causing me problems. I thought, you know, I had, you know, Crohn's disease or something. Yeah. It's just, that sort of health anxiety, it only lasts, you know, a couple of minutes, you know, or however long it takes for those pains to go away. So this was like a, a shock, but I never thought that it would be anything like this. I thought it might be sepsis or, you know, something else, not, not leukemia. I'm just glad that, you know, I went to the doctors because I had all these symptoms, but no, no way of piecing them together. Like you say, they're so disparate. Um, and I think, you know, that's what we see when we do the, the spot leukemia campaign. You have these symptoms that are just so random, you know, sure, fever, that could be anything. Bruising, that's just really weird. And no, who even notices a bruise half the time? And you try and put them all together. And unless you, unless you know those symptoms, you're not going to instinctively think, maybe I've got leukemia. Although I did watch Call the Midwife the other day, and they had someone with AML. And like, right at the start of it, I was like, leukemia definitely because you know they really played up the Once symptoms you know, you know. yeah 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 absolutely and yeah. you know i think sharing that's really important yeah. and it's important to know that we're not saying it's always leukemia it's just it might be something serious and just double check yeah it could you know that's the thing you know with, with something so random like that yeah you know there's there's no harm in getting checked out by the doctors if you've, especially if you've got a multitude of different symptoms that are all kind of nagging doubts because you see that quite often, I think, um, in chronic patients, especially, because, you know, and it takes so long for them to get diagnosed quite often as well. Um, you know, I was obviously in an acute situation, so it came on quickly as an emergency presentation at hospital. But I think, you know, when you have these, these weird symptoms, especially the bruising and stuff and bleeding and yeah, go, go straight away, go and get checked out. And it's peace of mind, if anything. It's interesting you mentioned sepsis because sepsis is one of those things they've been campaigning for ages for people to recognize the symptoms of. And is that the reason why you suspected it was something like that? Is it, do public awareness campaigns have that impact, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if you go, go to the hospital now, there'll be like posters for sepsis everywhere because it is, you know, and I, I don't know, I've, I've read a lot of things about how how often people get sepsis and how often it's actually something else plus sepsis so it's, it's kind of like one of those campaigns where you're thinking is it really as important as it should be but clearly that message got home because you know it should be the first thing first thing you're looking for and you know the moment i went into went into the emergency admissions thing that, that's what they did they, they treated me for sepsis and then 
you know the, the rest of it was was taken long and i think you know the the the, the power behind that campaign has been fantastic so I guess my next question is, you, you, you have done a story online for us uh, telling your diagnosis story. And mm-hmm. why is that? Why is the Spot Leukemia campaign important to you? Why did you want to get involved in it in that way? Because I didn't know, quite frankly, because I had no idea what the symptoms of leukemia were. I'm, I'm quite a clever person, but I'm not like, you know, medically, you know, trained or anything like that. But I, I you know, I read the newspapers, I watch, watch documentaries, you know, I'm not like um, just just living in, in a little isolationary box. And so I was surprised that I didn't know about leukemia. And I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, my doctor may have, I, I, I haven't ever spoken to him again, the, the guy that put me to the hospital, but he clearly recognized there was something wrong with me and clearly recognized that I needed help. But if I hadn't gone that day, I would have, I genuinely probably would have died. I'd have, you know, at the very most got into an ambulance and, but, you know, I'd be so many more days behind the treatment. And I think sharing my story shows how run of the mill and mundane the symptoms can be, but how dangerous um, the actuality can be. And, you know, speed is so imperative in in this kind of situation. And, you know, I'm able to articulate myself with words. Um, so I, I just thought it was a really good opportunity. You know, I'm not a marathon runner. I'm not going to raise, you know, thousands of pounds running, you know, London's Brighton or Great North Run or anything, but I can write. So, you know, I was just, it just seemed a natural thing to do. I've been writing all the way through um, my treatment. So from about three weeks in, people were kind of noticing that, you know, I wasn't on Facebook or at work or or at Facebook and on work both at the same time, you know, it's like, um, or, you know, I, I just wasn't very visible. Um, my wife was trying to juggle close friends and family and keep them all updated. And we just decided to, to write a blog. Um, it's just a, didn't do anything fancy. It's just a Facebook page. And it was just like, this is what's happening. This is, this is what's wrong with me. And that was kind of, it was a difficult experience. It was difficult to write because I felt, a kind of need to be positive throughout, but I enjoyed being able to to share what I was going through. You know, when people clicked the like button or you know sent a little message, it was just so so nice. It just felt like people were with me. And you know, I remember when I my hair started going, and um, you know, I shaved it off and took a picture and stuck it on my Facebook page. And it kind of I still don't particularly recognise me with short hair. My hair used to be like down here somewhere, but you know, it, it was just like, it was nice to, this is, this is me now, you know, this is me, very little hair or well, no hair at the time. Um, and people were accepting and it's, it's those kinds of things that put, putting those messages out there just seem natural. And I think I've been able to educate like my group of friends and colleagues about the leukemia um, symptoms, but you know, clearly there's more to be done. And as, in, as you know, and anything that I can do to, to help with the, you know, leukemia care and spot leukemia campaign I'm, I'm up for because I can do stuff. I can talk to you and, you know, this kind of thing. It's not, you know, uncomfortable for me to go through. That's good to know. I mean, we wouldn't, the spot leukemia campaign wouldn't work without people actually sharing their personal stories. So I'm very grateful. Because it becomes too abstract then, doesn't yeah. it? You know, you need that kind of real world example. And, you know, I'm a regular kind of person with, family you know kids and 
it just happened out of the blue. And I think more people need to be aware of the symptoms and to be aware of the, you know, the drastic bam, the, the change to your life that can happen as a result of diagnosis. So you were referred to the emergency department by the GP and then eventually you came to this diagnosis of APL, acute promyelocytic leukemia. So, I mean, APL is rare, I think it's fair to say. So, I mean, how did, how did the rarity of the diagnosis on top of not understanding what leukemia was, did that make any difference as well? Did it, was it an added annoyance that it was, that you got a specially rare form or was it not really something on your, on your mind at the time? That's interesting. Um, I was talking about this last night, actually, and I, I realised that um, there's about 120 cases of APL um, in the UK each year. And there's 104 national lottery draws in the UK each year. So I've got about the same chance of getting APL as you have of winning a jackpot on the lottery, which is kind of annoying. <laughs> um, so the, the difficulties I faced they were really negligible at the time. Um, I think the lack of awareness around APL through some of the nursing staff meant that they couldn't necessarily make direct decisions. In some cases, I would have been one of the first, more recent people they've seen. Um, I was transferred to Cardiff, Cardiff Heath Hospital, where you know they specialised more in what what they needed to do with me. Um, I think they wanted to like filter my blood or something because I was reacting against the the drugs they'd given me. And I think there was just some kind of level of not quite sureness in some of the treatments. But generally, you know, it made me feel special. Um, it was kind of nice because there was someone else. When I was, became an outpatient, there was someone else who had APL and she was like about a month or two ahead of me. So whereas I was like doing my f- first lot of chemo, she was on her second lot of chemo. So it would just be nice to like, compare notes that kind of thing's been hard you know in terms of like learning about it as well there's not so many examples i think the funny thing about apl is because it's got such a great survival rate is that there's so many of us telling our stories because we have the opportunity to and you know i'm, I'm really grateful for that you know it, it does have if you find it quick enough then you can treat it and it's just got a really good rate from the treatment that you have in terms of like literature you know, yourself and other blood cancer charities that may be around have both published, you know, APL books. So you can read that and understand it. The only real kind of thing for me about that was I'm in Wales rather than in England where there's, you know, slightly different things and they'd approved the treatment earlier in Wales than they had in England. So some of the literature was referring to the older treatment, but I think that's all sorted out now. So yeah, it, it did make me feel special. It did make me feel properly, why me? You know, what, why am I that one in 120? But, you know, it's that whole, oh, you've got a good cancer discussion that is always tough because sometimes you can be like, yeah, I've got a good cancer. I, I, I've got a good chance of survival. And then it's like, how is this good? You know, my, my, my life's in pieces here. How, how is this good? It's part of, you know, why I'm here today because I'm, I'm alive and I'm very grateful for that opportunity to, still be here and to be able to talk about my experiences. It's interesting you mentioned the remission rate because you very kindly came along to our APL webinar and talked about your experience with treatment and APL is the one that 
all the doctors say is a high success rate is this amazing drug um but it didn't quite go that smoothly for you did it it was a bit more of a bumpy ride <laughs> yeah so there's something called um differentiation syndrome which can happen when you take the treatment for that which is arsenic trioxide and atra so you're basically taking arsenic and vitamin a but for some reason some people reject it and my body decided it didn't really like this treatment and so within like my first week in hospital i put on two stone and my blood counts were like ridiculously high or ridiculously low or whatever the the bad one is they, they'd gone to you know stupid new levels um so that's why they wanted to get my you know look into blood filtering or something and then i went back onto my treatment again and i had differentiation syndrome again and again i was just really really ill with it they did say you can't get it a third time so that was good <laughs> and i didn't get it a third time and i was able to carry on with my treatment but yeah it was, it was really hard because i i was in cardiff my wife was here in swansea and you know visiting was very hard so you know i'd quite often sneak off the ward and wander around they've got this duck pond um, in cardiff hospital and i just walk laps around it um, with my headphones on my sunglasses on and just try and make sense of where I was. And it's really weird. It's kind of like I was in rehab while I was waiting to get better. But at the same time, I'm thinking, but what if it doesn't work again? And you're kind of like playing with that. Am I going to be okay? And what happens if I don't, if I'm not okay? And it's was, it was really hard to kind of juggle that in your head. So yeah, that, that differentiation syndrome wasn't fun at all. Since I got diagnosed, I have found that on certain days I find I'm quite depressed or I can be quite anxious and the leukaemia has affected us with that quite a bit and it impacts on your daily life quite a lot. I found it quite hard to manage at times when I didn't know what my life expectancy was going to be or what was going to happen next. Sarah Jane is just one of the people affected by blood cancer to benefit from our Anne Ashley Counselling Fund. Our grants fund up to six sessions, allowing you to explore the impact of a diagnosis with a professional. To find out more and apply, search Anne Ashley Counselling Fund on our website or call our helpline team on 080 88 010 444. It's interesting what you say about weighing it up in your head because... To, on from the outside, I think it's ninety three percent five year remission rate for APL. Mm-hmm. Ninety three is a very high number, but I'm sure someone in it sees the seven percent and goes, "Probably going to be in the seven percent." It, it's sort of human nature, I think, to to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, yeah. Why, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you see that number? Um, you know, my my mood flip flopped a lot when I was ill. That, that was certainly always a worry. What if, you know, A, I've had the bad luck to be one of 120. What about if I'm in the bad luck to be in that eight or nine? Yeah, which I think is a logical thing to, to think about in that position, yeah. I think. And you, you've written a little bit about this for us in uh, like being in that 93% and the impact that can have on you when you wrote about survivor's guilt for us fairly recently. Do you just want to explain a little bit more about that concept and why you thought it was important to to write for us about the topic? Yeah, of course. Um, 
So survivor's guilt is the kind of guilt, you've, it's, it's very literal, it's the guilt that you feel for, for being a survivor. And for me, it's kind of combined with a whole bunch of other issues about my personality and the, the way that I think of myself. But I've, I found it very difficult. The idea of celebrating being a survivor when other people don't survive for me personally, I'm not saying, oh my God, you know, I'm not for a second saying that other people shouldn't be happy about the fact they've survived and have a, you know, goodbye cancer party, whatever, whatever you need to do and whatever feels right for you. But for me, the idea of celebrating it, it just felt a bit wrong. Um, I couldn't, I, I don't think I'd have enjoyed the experience of seeing other people celebrating when, you know, I wasn't getting any better. And that that's, that's kind of stuck with me. So like, you know, in, in my last session, um, in my last chemo session, the nurses were just lovely. You know, they've, you know, I, I still like recognize them. They still recognize me. We have nice chats when we go for my biopsies and stuff, but they were so lovely. And they were like, Oh my God, it's your last session. And I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> because I could, I couldn't be excited about it because, you know, there were people sitting directly opposite me who wouldn't, necessarily ever get that i didn't i didn't pry into their diagnoses but you know they'd been here longer than me and they were still there you know i i didn't feel right about that i have the, the kind of thing with with the bell ringing as well there wasn't a bell in in our ward that i know of but i'd heard about the concept and you know someone was like are you gonna ring the bell no um and yeah i, I found that kind of kind of challenging to try and make a big deal out of something because, you know, we talk a lot about survivors. We talk about people who battle cancer and you fight cancer. Um, I did nothing of the sort. I lay back and eventually would let people put drugs in me um, and the drugs beat the cancer. I, I didn't beat the cancer. It wasn't my positive mental attitude, which I tried to maintain for my own sanity. It wasn't that. It, it wasn't like, you know, I was combating it on a daily basis i was just putting up with it and hoping the drugs worked so you know when, when for me being called like you know a cancer warrior um, which someone referred to me as i was just like i'm a pacifist you know I'm, I'm not in it for the fighting i'm i'm just you know thank the nhs it's had nothing to do with me it was all down to the drugs so yeah that, that that kind of thing doesn't quite sit well with me i don't have a problem if anyone has any joy with and feels that they've attacked their cancer because they probably have. They've probably started, you know, eating more healthily or drinking more healthily, and that's helped their body fight the cancer. But for me, I did very little apart from just just take it, and even then, that was quite reluctantly because I really didn't like having um, the cannulas put in and would, would screen the house down and just ask for days off my treatment, which unfortunately would never actually let me have. Well, fortunately, this is all part of the conversation about validating everyone's experience as being different. And I think there is perceptions of how it should be to survive cancer. And we need to we do need to work on sort of breaking those those down a bit and allowing people to to deal with it in their own way. You know, because you're is it fair to say that you're going to be affected by your APL diagnosis for the rest of your life, regardless of the fact you're still in remission. If you, even if you never relapse, it'll still be a, a big part of what happened to you. Oh yeah, absolutely. It'll always be something that 
you know, it, it's changed me irrevocably. You know, there's, it's changed my body. Like, you know, my hair isn't my hair anymore. My face isn't my face anymore. You know, I've got very dark bags under my eyes. And that's just the appearance side of things. Mentally, it has, you know, incredibly hit me hard. You know, that, that kind of sense of mortality, that vulnerability, very much so. And of course, having gone through something like that, um, if it doesn't affect your mental health, then you're a very lucky, level-headed person. And, you know, I'm so pleased for you because it, it's really shaped my mental health. I wasn't, you know, the, the best study to start off with. Um, you know, I've had depression for 30 years, anxiety, panic attacks, all that kind of stuff. So I was already on antidepressants when I got ill. But the, I think it's the, the immediate impact of having you know, an acute diagnosis and just being rushed to hospital and being so ill so quickly. You don't have that time. You don't have that wait where you know, you've gone to get a mole checked and you know, if they're going to come back to you with a blood test and, you, and you're, you sat at home, like I said earlier, you, you kind of sat at home thinking, maybe that mole's cancer. And you've got some time to think about what's the worst case scenario here. Whereas when you just, bam, you're in hospital, you've got leukemia. It's like, hey, what? You know, how, how, do you, how do you process that? And the problem is with something like PTSD, which, which I've got, um, is that your brain takes a look at this huge amount of information and feelings and emotions that needs to be processed and just says, nah. I can't handle that. Um, I'll just have the, the little bits. And so you just have this huge amount of data, this huge amount of raw emotion that's just waiting to go through the system. And it doesn't. And this is, this is what causes PTSD. You have all this stuff that's just bubbling up behind you and you need to be able to process it. And so that, that really shook me. And, you know, I'm pretty much on the other side of that now. I think I've got most, most stuff down there, but, you know, still, still clearly working on um, my sort of self-image because, you know, I still have, I don't recognize my face in the mirror, um, that kind of thing. It's just like, who are you? You know, I really don't like being on webcams. So thanks for this opportunity, Charlotte. But yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been hard to, to get through that. And I think that will always shape who I am. I'll always be far more aware of it um, my body aches from the drugs and from the you know the, the months spent in isolation rooms and all that kind of stuff i guess what strikes me when you're talking about your diagnosis of ptsd is that clearly the mental impact as you said started at the point of diagnosis and we in the cancer support world i think there's a tendency to think about that part of support being needed from the point at which you get out of hospital because there's too much going on but it sounds as if you were in need of support before then to prevent this from developing into PTSD is that a fair assessment yeah absolutely um that, that's it's exactly what I what I needed and I asked for it it was only like I think it had been about three weeks I was getting panic attacks you know, I was put on to, I'm going to forget the actual name of it. So I'm just going to call it Valium because that's what it's called. That's what everyone knows it as. And that helped in those kind of moments. But, you know, I'm, I'm happier that I'm alive and mentally scarred than being, you know, not here. I'm, I'm 
I, I can't fault the doctors for my treatment of my leukemia. It would have been great to get some more specialist psychological help from the outset, I think, because, you know, you can't give someone that kind of news and then just say, okay, so you've got that, here's, here's a booklet. Because that's, you need that hug, you know, um, you, you need that understanding of it. And I was in no fit states. My, I had a bleed behind my right eye and I didn't have very clear vision at all. And it turned out that my left eye wasn't very good and needed a pair of glasses. But I didn't know this at the time because my right eye had been doing all the reading. So, you know, this happened like as I got ill, I had this bleed and all of a sudden I couldn't, I couldn't read anything. Um, so I really, really was disorientated and not, not knew what was going on. Not only was I fevered and delirious, but I couldn't read anything. So I, you know, that, that's how I generally understand things, you know, or read about it. So it's just like, what, what is wrong with me? And being able to have some kind of support um, just to make sure that I was doing okay, because I, I really wasn't. I mean, at the end, they got like the psych team in came visit me in, in my isolation room we had a couple of like basic starter therapy sessions where you talk about your past um and you know your childhood and all that kind of stuff and you know how you're feeling right now it was something and i did feel better for having someone listen to me and to say you know actually you know we, we need to keep a watch on him but afterwards you know i've gone down the, the therapy route and i can't i can't recommend that enough I was just sort of thinking as you were sort of describing that is my feelings on curing cancer is that we haven't cured cancer unless we do as little harm as possible whilst doing so. And I think you're a great example of that in the APL is highly curable, but it's clearly left you with long-term impacts that you're a different person. And are we curing cancer if we don't prevent some of those other things going on at the same time. I just wondered what your perspective on that, because that's, that's my personal opinion on it. But then I've never had cancer, so I don't know. <laughs> no, it's cool, man. Yeah, I mean, I understand that kind of holistic approach because, you know, you, you've, you've cured one part of me, but other parts of me are messed up. I have a blue badge because I get really fatigued. So am I really cured of cancer? Technically, I don't have cancer anymore. I'm in remission from cancer, all that kind of thing. But I'm still affected by it, you know, mentally and physically. And that's where, you know, that, that's why I'm still relying on support. You know, I was, so 22 months ago was when I got ill. And, you know, I'm still having therapy every Wednesday. I'm still learning to, to really get back up to my kind of walking speed again, because my knees really hurt and I get really fatigued. I'm still yeah. really kind of a nervous person. And so, you know, I'm still going to the APL support group that we have and I'm, I'm still seeing my hematologist. I'm still getting biopsies. I, although I'm cured from the cancer, I'm not cured from the cancer experience and I'm not sure that that's achievable anytime soon. It may well be. I'd, I'd, I'd love to be, you know, I'd love to get to like 55 and be able to sit back and be like, yeah, I had cancer. That's fun. It's all over now back to who I was but I I don't know I, d I really don't know I think it's just something that I'm going to have to learn as I go along the way but yeah you know I'm incredibly grateful for the support you know post post chemo you know they, I opt into having biopsies every three months I hate them so much 
but you know, I choose to have one because they've offered me one and I'd rather be looked after. I'd rather, you know, make sure it doesn't come back, you know, and have blood tests like every couple of months as well. And it's just like, they, they, they still care, which is lovely. And, you know, people, people at Leukemia Care have just been fantastic. And it's just been really nice to be able to have that kind of experience where, where people don't necessarily just think, oh, no cancer out the door. It's like, you're still affected by it because, you know, it's going to be part of my life. And my family's life. My kids were about 10 and six when I got ill. And so now they're 12 and eight. And, you know, that's affected their childhood. They've, they've had some counseling for this because went from being their dad one day to being some guy in hospital um, who they didn't really see very often, you know, and it's affected my wife significantly as well, because, you know, she was there, you know, the whole time. And, you know, she had to face up to the possibility of you know not having me around anymore so yeah it's, it's always going to have shaped me i think i don't think that's ever there and you know i know that we started up support group for like family members um of people affected by leukemia my wife went to one of those meetings um and yeah you know that's, that's just really really inclusive and that kind of support will be needed for everyone you know not 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 the exact support will be needed needed for everyone but aftercare basically need, needs needs to be in a place I, I think the family and friends is sometimes the or it's not the forgotten group anymore i think there's definitely more recognition but it, it's an area that's still a bit of an unmet need i agree i wanted to come on to um sort of your experience of um, the whole covid pandemic time and has that i guess added extra mental health pressures um, being that you, you've been shielding and you were defined as extremely vulnerable, which I know that a lot of people have found difficult. How has it been for you? Yeah, um, COVID was interesting. Um, so I was still having chemotherapy when it started um, as an outpatient. Um, I had like, I think two, three more cycles under, under COVID times. And, you know, it went from being like, you know, my wife would come in and sit with me and, We'd have a little chat and then, you know, I'd go and have my treatment for a bit to becoming like, you know, proper like strict in and out. And, you know, we're all kind of like, we need masks. Yeah, we need masks. Okay, let's all wear masks. But we, no one was really quite sure. And then, you know, as, as it became more and more clear what was happening in the situation, you kind of saw the experience change from being, I'm going in for my treatment to be something kind of scary and a bit sad um you know you could almost tell like once i went in i wasn't feeling particularly good and they were a bit concerned and you could kind of see like behind her mask the the nurse was a bit worried and like i don't, I don't have covid i promise but you know it's just like yeah it was just really really difficult it really changed the kind of dynamic and especially being in hospital you know you know, you sort of smile and shrug a lot. You know, so much of your language is through your face and not being able to communicate with people by, by like, you know, smiling. It's, it's so difficult. And it became a really clinical kind of um, experience. I was, I'm going to say I'm lucky enough. Um, it wasn't a massive shock um, to me going into this kind of situation. You know, because I'd, I was immunocompromised, I spent a lot of time in isolation so I was kind of used to that kind of lockdown, locked in feeling, you know, I was in a little room by myself, wasn't allowed out. 
sometimes I'd like stick my head around the corridor and ask if I could you know, have some lunch, please, because they'd forgotten about me. But, you know, that, that, that was the sort of limit of my getting out. You know, sometimes I had pneumonia, so my wife would like come around and be like dressed up with all the, with, with the face mask and the shield as well, the plastic shield over her face and all that kind of stuff. And the doctors would come in and it's like being, I don't know, I felt like I was a hazmat problem. You know, I, I thought they were going to come in and be like, yeah, he's got hazardous toxic waste there. So I didn't feel like I was any particularly put out by being shielding. In fact, we, we, we took the decision because of my situation, because of our situation, to take the kids out of school um, about a week before um, lockdown started, which, you know, turns out to have been a pretty good idea. Um, it's been difficult at times. My son had COVID. Not, he didn't really have it badly. He's, as I say, he's, he's 12. Um, it didn't really hit him very hard. But that was difficult. And, you know, the moment the positive test came in, it was just like, what do we do? And, you know, I was on Airbnb thinking, I just need to move out for a fortnight, you know, but where can I go? Does it have Wi-Fi? You know, these are my genuine considerations. But then, but then it was like, well, what if I have COVID already and I don't know about it? And then I'm in, you know, a, a beach hut or something because, you know, that's what you can rent in Swansea. Um, or, you know, I was in some kind of, you know, flat somewhere else, far away from home, just being like, what, what do I do if I get ill? So we made the decision to just be really super duper careful. He stayed in his room. He had like the upstairs bathrooms for himself. <laughs> we went downstairs and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we, we cooked him dinner and sort of like we'd knock on the door, he'd step away from the door, we'd pop the plate on the, on the side, close the door again. Oh my God, it was hard work. It really was. But, you know, I'm just, you know, we, we, we got to, we, we've got to now. Um, and that's amazing. You know, it's a long way. You know, the first couple of weeks we had an argument with our supermarket. They kind of forgot to um, deliver our shopping. And that was a panic. That was just awful. And, you know, we were just desperate because we didn't have enough food. Um, and you, obviously at that, those first couple of weeks, you couldn't get deliveries. And we were lucky enough to like find a local greengrocer who'd do some deliveries. And, you know, we had, we had some stuff come in. But it was a bit touch and go at the start, you know, not being allowed out. I think at the end now, you know, we've come so far from being just not allowed out of your house to we, we went away last weekend um, at the end of half term. I mean, it was utterly terrifying for me because I've not been in a crowd since, you know, I went to a football match in August 2019. Um, That's the last time I was in a group of people. So that was weird. But um it was it was nice. We went to the beach. We had ice cream. I'm not neutropenic anymore, so I can eat ice cream now. Um, it's brilliant, you know. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was very intimidating, but I'm so glad I did it because, you know, building that confidence up, I think after cancer was harder enough. But then to have this extra year, 15 months of being scared has been really difficult too because I just want to get on with my life you know I've got tickets to a concert in November I'd really like to go to that I've no idea if it's going to take place at this point because you know who knows what's going to happen but yeah I'd just like to have some kind of semblance of life back I mean I'm lucky I, I work remotely I've worked from home in this job since I've had it so you know I kind of don't have that pressure to go into an office 
but you know, maybe, maybe I'd quite like to go into an office and like see the people I work with because it's been a long time since I've seen them. And hopefully we won't ever end up back in the position you were describing at the beginning, which was very tough for shielded people. Our freezer is well stocked now. I can assure you of that. We have extra <laughs> toilet roll supply in my son's wardrobe. That's what I was just thinking. You said that we're all going to be perpetually prepared oh, no. forever now, I think. It's never going to leave our memories. Yeah, we'll have COVID bunkers at the end of the garden. It'll be great. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so final question from me for today is, given it was sort of everything you've said about your experience, is there sort of a tip you'd like to leave for anybody who might be listening who's fairly recently been diagnosed with any type of leukemia, but... Yeah, what, what advice would you have? Ask for help. That's it. Ask for help. Because no one knows how you're feeling. No one knows what you're going through. And the primary goal of any caregiving team is to treat your cancer. And if, if you're struggling in some other way, you know, like I was struggling with my eyesight and no one really picked up on that for about a week and a half. I was struggling with my mental health and no one picked up on that for about three or four weeks. And I think you just need to ask, you know, just, just be that little bit bullshy, that little bit pushy and just say, please, I've got this going on too. Can you help me? And, you know, I'm, I'm so glad I did in the end, but because I wasn't particularly well, um, I had a hard time expressing what, what I was going through. And, you know, having, having gone through the therapy sessions I've had, um, I found a kind of new purpose really in like my life, which sounds so utterly pretentious, doesn't it? I found, I found something new to do with my life, you know? Um, so like I was writing a lot. I've got a bit of a background writing like short stories and lots of failed novels and that kind of thing. But Going through the therapy in particular, I'm reliving these moments and I'm writing about a lot of them. And as a result, you know, quite a lot of these have turned into, into poems and poetry is not something that I've really um, taken particularly seriously before, but apparently some people think I'm quite good at it, which is really nice. And I had a poem about Ring, it's called Ring the Bell, which was about all the experiences I had about do I or don't I ring the bell? Um, and that got um, commended in the Hippocrates Prize for Poetry and Medicine. Um, so that was just like, this is really cool. You know, I would never have done this if it wasn't for that. If it wasn't for getting help, I would never have moved on with my life and got back into writing again. And, you know, I've, I've got another poem being published in a couple of days, and that's about my blood cells because you know why not yeah so it's, it's, it's just been really it's just been really nice to be able to write my thoughts down in general whether i had them published or not that, that's not the important bit the fact is that i've been able to write and understand who, who i am now and what i've been through and therapy has really helped with that because i wouldn't have been in this position to go through that you know i'll sit down with my wife some evenings and she'd be like, do you remember this? And I was like, no, I've got no recollection of that happening in my treatment at all. And she would like, tell me a whole new story about, you know, the, the time that, you know, I swore at a nurse or the time that I refused to have a cannula put in again or the time when the cannula fell out of my arm. 
you know, all these kind of like situations that are there waiting to be processed, but haven't got through yet. And I've just found that so helpful and so therapeutic, but so, so clarifying, you know, it's really cleared my mind and I kind of understand what I've been through a lot more now, which I wasn't in a position to before. So my top tip, get help, ask for help. Perfect. Thank you, Jamie. It's been lovely to speak to you. Thanks for your time today. That's no problem at all. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline on 080 88 010 444. See you next month.